Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so this is a uh, special edition of the a podcast where I'm going to be talking with Neil MacArthur about a book that we recently published together called Robot Sex, Social and Ethical Implications. I presume most people listening to this know who I am, but I thought maybe I would let Neil introduce himself to listeners. So, Neil, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself, your own background in philosophy, and also, I guess, sure. why, why you got interested in this particular topic. Uh, sure. Yeah. I uh, So my current position, I'm the director of the Center for Professional Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. I'm also an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy. My background is actually in the history of philosophy. I started out working on uh, David Hume and the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, but uh, having published a book on that topic, I sort of uh, I sort of evolved away from the history of philosophy. I still work on the intersection of the history of philosophy and what is now, I guess, sort of my field, which is the philosophy of sexuality and sexual ethics. I, um, I do have a couple of projects ongoing uh, that examines different historical figures in philosophy and their views on sexuality, but mostly now I work on contemporary issues in the philosophy of sexuality. I am also interested in the ethics of technology, and so once again there's an intersection around where new technologies impact relationships and impact sexuality, which is of particularly which is of particular interest to me, and I would say uh, if I were to narrow it down and just say what is my exact research focus right now, it would be on the intersection of uh, technology and sexuality. Yeah, but I'm curious about that like path from you know David Hume to robot sex. Like why why did you why did you end up there? Uh, it, it initially I think was was teaching driven. I mean to be coldly practical, uh, it's a lot easier to get uh, students into a class about sexuality than it is uh, a class about David Hume. Uh, also, the dynamics of my department, we had an awful lot of people who were very able uh, in the history of philosophy and had a lot of uh, interesting courses in that field. Um, we had a lot of demand for ethics courses. Uh, we didn't have a lot of people to teach them. And uh, there was also the Center for Professional Applied Ethics, which I started getting involved in. And so I started working on ethics and contemporary moral philosophy in general. And I had always, I mean, I should say, by the way, that when it comes to the history of philosophy, I was always interested in the values side of the history of philosophy. I was always interested in moral and political philosophy as it was discussed by historical figures. But I just, uh, yeah, again, partly teaching driven, started to work on contemporary moral issues. 
And, um, you know, the, the philosophy of sexuality hasn't been exactly a thriving field, but it was one that was really, I thought, starting to um, move quickly and starting to have some really interesting work and really interesting people. And so I was just drawn to some of the stuff I read, which I found just really uh, really fascinating and uh, really, really sophisticated and, and neglected. As far as actual, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, so like it's also a popular topic, I think, amongst students and actually, a lot of the issues around sex and sexuality, I think, have dealt with, you know, campus related debates around sexual assault. And so it's a a topic that's live in their minds, no doubt, at that point in their lives. That's right. I think that is right. I think that there was also, I mean, I must admit, I, uh, I was one of several people in my department a little frustrated with the, the I, I don't want to say I was frustrated with the sort of people who went into philosophy because I had nothing against the people who went into philosophy. They were smart people. I was more frustrated with the sort of people who weren't going into philosophy. I thought that there was a lot of people who were um, interesting. We didn't have as much diversity as I wanted. Let me just put it that way. And I wanted to get a, a little more in a little more balance or a little include some different people in the conversation as far as uh, gender goes and other kinds of backgrounds go. And this was the class like this was a way of drawing them in. And as far as the actual robots go, I mean, it was a topic I just started teaching in my class, and it always seemed to uh, sort of take over in a way. I always taught it at the end, but it always uh, was probably the most popular topic, and I always ended up grading tons of papers about it and then reading those papers and um, discussing it. I I just sort of realized that this was something that was going to be you know, really relevant to people and really interesting. But I mean, was it like David Levy's book, which was the entry point for you into this whole area or was it something else? I don't think it was. I wish I could point to something. I mean, I remember looking at Levy's book and it is an interesting book, but I definitely didn't feel like, wow, this is the last word or wow, this has really opened up a new world for me. Um, I, I I thought it was interesting. I thought it had a lot of limitations and, uh, and sort of from a philosophical perspective, maybe, it was just feeling like having read that book and having seen the potential for debate, I was also feeling like there wasn't a lot philosophically that was out there. From my own perspective, like I always tell certain stories about how I got interested in this topic and some of them are true. The one that I normally tell, which is true, is that uh, this wasn't really something that was on my radar for a long time until I was asked by James Hughes from the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies to contribute to a special edition of a journal that he edits on the basic income guarantee and technological unemployment. And initially, when he asked me if I wanted to contribute an essay to that, I wasn't too sure if I had anything to say. But as it happened, I was teaching a course on ethics and law at the time, looking in particular at the regulation of sex work and prostitution. And it occurred to me that an interesting angle on the technological unemployment debate would be to look at, you know, whether black market or non-socially accepted forms of labor would be displaced by technology. And that kind of got me into the whole robot sex topic. And like after that, I realized that, probably similar to yourself, that there, there were interesting philosophical issues to be discussed in relation to robots and sexuality, which were not being discussed in as rigorous or thoughtful a manner as they could be. I mean, not to completely disparage David Levy's book, but I thought it was probably a little bit uh, philosophically shallow in its analysis of some of the issues. Um, And from a cynical perspective, sort of career-minded perspective, it's often easiest to make a big splash in an area of research where there hasn't been much work done to date. There's lots lots of low-hanging fruit 
you know. That's right. And this one, um, the rewards were fairly immediate in that way, in that as soon as you have any visibility on this topic, your phone starts ringing. And uh, and I was I, I continue to be astonished at how much um, interest there is. Um, and I guess it shouldn't be astonishing because it also is, I mean, striking, of course, how much this is a part of a certain kind of film and fiction and television. Uh, I mean, it's just sort of if you're going to do a sci-fi film it's, it, that has anything to do with androids, I mean, this is almost, you know, a cliched part of it. And uh, so there was there was an obvious gap between the kind of level of public interest and and the level of scholarly take up. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I have been astounded by the level of media interest in this topic. And, you know, I often turn down offers to be interviewed because I think, you know, the marginal gains of any particular interview on this topic are limited. And particularly when they are sought for by tabloid media, I know they're going to take a particular angle on it that I think is not always productive or interesting. But I, I'm putting together a talk actually for a couple of days time on this, uh, these issues. And I just searched through Google for news stories about sex robots in the past two weeks. And I was, you know, there were several pages worth of stories all in the past week, partly because there was a Channel 4 documentary in the UK last Thursday, I think, called The Rise of the Sex Robot, which uh, garnered a lot of media attention. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm bowled over by how much interest there is. And I think it has accelerated and increased in the past couple of years since I first had this topic on my radar. Yeah, I always felt like this was, every time an article comes out, I naively think this is it. This is the last they've exhausted themselves, and it turns out to be <laughs> far from the case. Yeah, I mean, I worry that a lot of the media attention tells us more about the business models in operation for online news media as opposed to any kind of serious engagement with the topic. But there are a handful of articles that have been written that I think you know, do approach this in a, a thoughtful and useful manner. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that kind of brings us to the topic of you know this this book that we put together, and why did we put it together? I mean, what were your motivations for doing it? Um, I um, I think that um, they're just I mean, partly I think again from the perspective of teaching this material, uh, wanting things that I could assign to my class. Um, I um, you know I I wrote a short paper that wasn't so much an argument it's just sort of a, a sort of a survey of the landscape um which i would assign to them but um it didn't really you know it didn't really contain a series of arguments it just sort of identified a bunch of issues and uh and i guess i sort of felt like well it would be really nice to have things that uh that i could assign and you know i mean i i contemplated you know possibly just writing a book on my own but i thought well it was it was just so clear to me that the issues were so complex and uh so you know touched on so many different areas that i didn't think any one person let alone me could actually cover it in a book and so it just struck me as as ripe for a collection yeah i agree i think like the moment in time in which we started putting this book together it seemed to me that we needed a range of perspectives a diverse set of perspectives and then after a bunch of people had been writing about this topic in a fairly thoughtful and serious manner, we then maybe ha would have an opportunity for the single authored book, which you know presents a particular view or a unique view. But yeah, I think the field was best served by a diversity of opinions at, at the current yeah. moment in time. Yeah, we should say there is, I mean, I think Kathleen Richardson does have a book coming out, which will be, I think, a very particular viewpoint. Um, 
but um, so yeah, and there may be more coming. Yeah, Kathleen Richardson, who's the co-founder of the Campaign Against Sex Robots, for those of you who don't know about that, um, and also Kate Devlin has a book coming out, I think next year, is working on a book, which is going to be a popular science take on the, on the topic, which I think could be quite interesting. So yeah, um, let's talk about our own kind of opinions and ideas about robot sex. I mean, one, do you have a, a set of arguments or ideas that you typically defend in relation to the topic? I do. I do. I find that um, to a certain extent, I'm usually called upon to be reactive. But um, just in terms of how the stories are structured, usually the first take that either the media or even students or someone take is this is going to be a weird, b terrible, c um, horribly sexist. So there's usually a series of, of negative views people have. And I'm always quick to point out that I don't think that all the concerns about sex bots should be dismissed. Uh, but my general message, I guess, in advance of any arguments, my general message is just that uh, I think that we should not panic about this and we should be prepared to uh, look for certain kinds of benefits that may come from them. My attitude to this has, has changed over time and i've become a little bit more aware of problems and difficulties that the ethics of technology gets into in particular which is just that most ethicists of technology tend to be very anti-technology and there are ways in which that can be quite a naive approach because you get lots of arguments written by people who identify negative features of the internet the ways in which it's affecting our our lives and our, our thinking processes and our social life and so on and that's useful, and again, many of the concerns that they raise are legitimate, but you know, what, I, what is the positive future vision that they are imagining? What, like, where do we move forward? It's not like the internet is going to go away, so how can we build a more positive vision for the use of this technology? And I think... Yeah, I- I agree with that, and, and I mean, I think we should maybe just sort of give give a you know give a shout out to uh, to Julian Savalescu in that he sort of I think laid down um, very well this idea that that with every new innovation and every new innovation, uh, um, our our answer our default answer doesn't have to be no. That um, you know technology does have benefits, and that we have as a sort of society and as a race a tremendous status quo bias that the new always seems threatening. And I think we forget a, the risks of, you know, not adopting technology or the costs of not adopting technology. And B, I think we forget that, you know, things are not perfect as they are. And we do have some problems to solve. Yeah. And I think you do a good job of setting this out in, in your contribution, your chapter in the book, which is titled the case for sex robots. I think if I remember the title properly, or is it the case for robot sex? The case for sex bots. The case, case for sex bots, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you could have a simple libertarian permissive attitude towards this technology that you know, it's not necessarily that it's a good thing, but it's not something that we should intervene with or prohibit. But you try to go beyond that, move beyond just a permissive attitude towards it. You think there could be genuine you know, positive benefits for individuals and for people in relationships. So maybe you could set out those arguments and we could uh, discuss them a little sure. bit. Sure. So f- first of all, I mean, let me say, I, I, um, that, you know, I say that there's plenty of people whose immediate reaction is negative. There's also plenty of people whose immediate reaction is a shrug. They think that these either are, you know, not significant. They're just another form of sex toy whatever. So, I mean, I think the first case that I try to make is that, um, some of the alarmists and I are in agreement on one fact, which is that these are significant and they're different from what came before. 
and I think that my arguments are premised on that. And um, so one of the one of the reasons I think I do take a lot of the concerns seriously is because I do agree with them that um, having a sex bot is not like having a sex toy and that this will potentially have impacts for society and for relationships. Uh, so we start there. Uh, and of course, we don't know when these are coming, or what these will look like. This is one of the things that um, we haven't talked about. But it, obviously, it's one of the things that we get asked immediately is, you know, what are these going to be exactly? When are they coming? Uh, I'm always quick to say, look, I'm not an engineer. I have no idea. I my strong sense is that these are coming faster than people think. Uh, partly because there's, I think, a lot of demand. There's a lot of people who want to make these, who have a profit motive for making these. And second, because this isn't dedicated research that needs to be you know, put into making sex bots. That, that um, first of all, there are, there's a lot of research being done on robotics in general and a lot of research being done on AI that can very quickly be repurposed for this. Um, so so I, think, I think we're going to see things moving quickly. Now, my view is, first of all, to say, yes, I mean, there will be, because they're so significant, because these are different, there will be um, potential negative impacts. And so my argument is not a, absolutely, it's not a libertarian argument. It's not an argument that just appeals to privacy and just says, uh, as some people might say, well, you know, sex bots will be something that are used by people who are consenting and rational, and they won't do obvious discernible harm to others so let's leave them alone i think we can do a little better than that uh, my argument is a balancing argument it says that there are costs and benefits and that the benefits will outweigh the costs. so what are the benefits well the, i think i think the most obvious benefit is companionship uh and i think that's significant because i think simply there are a lot of people who through no fault of their own have a lot of trouble finding companions and I know we're going to talk a little later maybe about the piece I wrote on digisexuals, but when I started talking about digisexuals, people who choose to get their uh, sexual experience from robots, the media reaction was, you know, lonely punters will only have sex with robots. And there was a lot of sort of disparaging comments made about all these lonely people who will turn to sex bots. And I sort of feel like, well, why is that so horrible that people who are lonely and lacking companionship uh, are offered something that may give them some comfort and uh, happiness. I think that we should take isolation and a lack of companionship seriously. Yeah, I mean, just to jump in, I, I agree, but it reminds me of um, an interview I did with a journalist in the Daily Star in the UK a few weeks back, or months back, in fact, when I, I tried to outline your argument about this uh, companionship for people who are, for whatever reason, kind of shut out from the market for companionship or the, um, the world of companionship. And the, the headline on the story ran that uh, sex robots will turn geeks into sex gods. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, think, I think there is an unfortunate level of stigmatization. Uh, you know, that, I think there was another article in The Guardian recently where they said the sex robots are coming, but it's mainly just you know, sad men who will use them. Right, exactly. And I, I find that, I mean, I find that objectionable for a number of reasons. One is, yeah, what, you know, yeah, why should we stigmatize men who can't find companions? And two, are we really sure um, that this is going to be so overwhelmingly men? Um, one of the things I don't think I say in the book, which I've sort of started to emphasize in my discussions afterwards is, look, right now, the uh, the market for sex toys is overwhelmingly female. 
And so why do we think that there will be no female buyers for sex bonds? Um, so having laid down that, that first basic position, which is that this will provide companionship for people, I, I do try to talk a little bit about why in particular um, people may have trouble finding companions. I mean, I think there's lots of reasons. You may just not be conventionally attractive. You may be shy, but you may also be in certain kinds of social situations that make it very hard to find partners. Um, you also may have had certain kinds of history around uh, trauma and so on. Uh, that makes it so that um, you're not especially uh, safe around partners or you, you find it difficult to meet people for that reason. So, yeah, so as a means of addressing isolation and as a means of addressing the sort of inequality that exists in access to intimacy, I think that they're important. Uh, and then uh, the focus of our Guardian piece was also on specifically how people in relationships might actually find these to be beneficial. Yeah, but like before you get into that, um, I just want to highlight something in relation to trauma because I think you do something interesting, which is you flip a typical objection to sex robots on its head there. So just to set out a typical objection to sex robots would be that they are dehumanizing and, and they objectify women and they present women as these passive, ever-compliant um, sexual subjects. But you actually point out that that could be a positive thing in some cases to have a compliant sexual partner. So maybe you could flesh that idea out. Sure, sure, that's right. And and I think that that standard objection um, isn't one that I dismiss out of hand. I, I think we'll probably we'll probably get into some of the, the objections later on, and I think we can come back to that one. But that's right. I tr I do try to point out um, that the idea that someone is you know passive and compliant. Uh, does take on a very different perspective if you've had a history of trauma where uh, safety becomes precisely what you're looking for in a partner and having a partner who doesn't surprise you and is willing to kind of go along with what you want and respect your wishes rather than impose their own wishes on you. Yes, given the, the history that lots of people have had in relationships and in their lives, um, having someone who will just do what they say is potentially not a bad thing. Yeah, okay, but then let's talk about the, the, the ways in which this could possibly complement um, and enhance existing human relationships. I mean, what, what's the idea there that you try to get across? Uh, so I guess I try to say that, um, that there, are, there are lots of people who um, have tensions in their relationships uh, around sex that have to do with either the amount of sex they want or... Um, the kind of sex they want. And sex bots obviously are not going to be the solution for everybody. It has to be something that everybody feels comfortable with. But um, when you look at what the experts call desire discrepancy, one partner wants sex more than the other. I mean, I think it's almost a mathematical certainty that this will affect every couple to some degree. I mean, no, you're never going to have relationships where everybody wants exactly the same amount. And so where there is sharp desire discrepancies, sex therapists will tell you this, this can cause a lot of problems. And having another kind of outlet that doesn't involve, you know, another, an actual infidelity, I think can help a lot. I think there's also the case that, and again, to sort of look at a, one of the objections from a different perspective, um, some people say, well, you know, aren't, aren't robots going to be forced to do all kinds of crazy things? Well, yes. I mean, there's lots of things that people either can't get or don't want to ask their partners to do that they could ask a robot to do. Yeah, I mean, just one point in relation to desire discrepancy as well that is that it, it, it's not necessarily that it's one person desires more and the other person desires less. It could be something that waxes and wanes for both sides of a relationship over time. Um, 
For sure. Yeah. And another contribution to the book, which I think is quite interesting, and I think they're all interesting, of course, but uh, another one which fits with this point quite well is Marina Adshaid's, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. You probably know better than I do. Uh, I think you are. Yeah. The, her chapter on marriage and the impact of sex robots on marriage. Uh, so like one of her arg- main ideas is that it'll, the advent of sex robots will make marriages less about sex and more about other virtues of interpersonal relationships like companionship and shared life goals and plans and co-parenting and things like that. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that makes exactly um, new kinds of relationships possible, too. I mean, the, you know, the classic example would be um, someone who is gay and someone who is straight who just want to raise a child together or something like that, that that the whole idea of I mean, uh, there's been a lot of discussion uh, in philosophy lately about minimal marriage, about the idea that. The, the kinds of benefits and the kinds of responsibilities that come with marriage don't have to be attached to sexual relationships. And we should think about legal uh, arrangements that enable different kinds of uh, different kinds of relationships. And I think that Marina's article and her ideas about sex bots plays into that very well. Yeah, actually, that, I mean, that's also a common you know, feminist argument about, about marriage, that marriage as it currently exists comes as this package, this bundle of different... Uh, virtues and rights and privileges and things like that. And a lot of the feminist literature, well, not a lot of it, but some of it is aimed at unbundling all these different elements of, of marriage and maybe then realizing some of those in, in different relationship types. And you could argue that, that the advent of different technologies of sex and Marina's chapter is about other technologies of sex as well, but robots yeah, could uh, uh, facilitate or hasten this unbundling process. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, you see some parallels and some interesting, uh, you know, uh, ways in which these arguments are being made in in the literature that's emerging right now, which is which is another sort of exploding field in the philosophy of sexuality, which is the literature around monogamy and non-monogamy. I mean, for a lot of people in advance of sex robots, uh, their solution to these kinds of problems is uh, is to structure relationships non-monogamously. I mean, Dan Savage uh, is famous for saying that, you know, he gets letters every day from people saying our relationship is great. Oh, except for the sex. And his solution is always, well, you know, find sex outside the relationship. Um, there's, you know, interesting and, and, uh, interesting arguments in favor of non-monogamy and there's all sorts of interesting, you know, people trying this out. Uh, but I think, uh, sex bots potentially address some of those same issues, uh, without potentially raising some of the kinds of complications that many people encounter with non-monogamous relationships. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be one of your ideas as well, that it's it serves as a middle road or middle ground between non-monogamy and um, and monogamy. So like, it, it's not full-blown affairs or polyamory. It's, it's something less than that, which might be more comfortable for the parties to a relationship. That's right. That's right. And it comes out of maybe, I guess, yeah, some of the same motivations that people have in raising, um, raising non-monogamy. But um, hopefully that's right with fewer of the complications. Yeah, I mean, this also gets into a point which uh, we, I know we've discussed offline before, which is, you know, is, is having sex with a robot cheating? And that's a question that I get asked a lot. I think you don't think it's a very interesting question, and I possibly agree. But I mean, what's, what's your take on that idea of having sex with a, 
a robot without the consent of your partner being a form of infidelity? Well, you know, I should say, as as I said earlier in in the program, that I don't dismiss it. I mean, one of the solutions. I mean, you can <laughs> you can you can sort of have try to have it both ways and say, well. Um, you know, sex bonds are so great because they address all this need for companionship and intimacy. But if you object, you could just say, oh, but come on, it's just a robot. Um, I still want to insist that precisely what makes robots so potentially beneficial is that people do see them as more than just a sex toy. And so from that perspective, I think that the, the, the idea of it being infidelity is, is not simply dismissible, that that you can't turn around and say, oh, it's just a robot, just be, you know, just to solve that problem. I think that um, I think that it is something you have to take seriously and negotiate. Um, I guess, you know, my view is that a lot of the things that we have, a lot of the concerns that people have, if they really think seriously about infidelity, I think a lot of the things that make it either morally problematic or psychologically upsetting don't necessarily uh, need to apply uh, with robots. I think that nevertheless, the visceral reaction people might have, I mean, if you ask people in surveys, would it be cheating? Quite a large percentage say yes. And I think that visceral reaction actually speaks to the fact that I, I, I am on the same page with a lot of people that it is something potentially significant and significantly, you know, and, and more than just using a sex toy. But but I do think that, um, that that's right. I, I don't think that uh, for most people, um, it counts as, uh, as, as a serious moral transgression. Now, I think that, I mean, I think there is a question there when you talk about without the consent of your partner. I mean, I think there's a sense in which anything you do that might upset your partner without the consent of your partner is a violation of the trust that exists in that relationship. Um, I think that we do, however, place special weight on a certain kind of sexual infidelity. Now, that itself can be a bit mysterious. I'm not totally sure why. I always tell a story about a British couple who made an agreement uh, not to eat cookies because they were both on diets, and so they both swore off cookies. And then the woman caught the man eating cookies, and they kind of laughed about it. And, I mean, if you make an agreement not to eat cookies and you violate that agreement, isn't that an infidelity? Why do we place that special weight on sexual infidelity? Now, to the extent that that we accept that, I think I think it is still I think it's, it's still a question. It, it doesn't strike me as one of these salient questions. You're right, but it's still perhaps worth discussing. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but I, I think it's interesting that yeah, you have to believe that sex robots are, exist in a category, an ontological category that makes them distinct from just simple sex toys, but also distinct from another human being for some of the arguments that you're making to go through. And, you know, I think it's plausible. Like there is some evidence from psychological studies that people approach and understand robots in different ways and that they may place them in a, a separate ontological category, not quite a thing, but not quite a person either. So, you know, th- there's plausible roots for that. But you definitely can't claim as the comedian Richard Herring has this whole sketch about cheating on with a robot. He claims that having sex with a robot is just an, an elaborate form of masturbation, which... Is, it's definitely not that, in your view. No, that's right. I mean, who knows? It may be for someone. I mean, it was funny. At my reading, um, one of my colleagues, when I, sorry, I, I did a book launch for this book, and one of my colleagues uh, really hammered that point home. He just said, look, what do you say to the, he called him the deep skeptic, who just says, this is nothing. This is a physical thing. This is masturbation. 
And, you know, my response was sort of to say, well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like Hobbes is fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no justice. Uh, you know, the skeptic says in his heart, there is no robot. I think that um, just, you know, Hobbes himself doesn't have a particularly good response to that skeptic, the fool who just says justice doesn't exist and I'm just not going to live by it. Um, if you're not going to enter that universe, then we have nothing to say to you. I think there's there's a sense in which that's my response too. that if you really just see this as masturbation, then a, none of the benefits and B, none of the concerns are going to hit home for you. And that's fine. You're just sort of stepping outside this debate. I'm having the debate with people who agree with me that there is something special going on and it's worth worrying about. Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm slightly more optimistic about maybe reaching some common ground with the skeptic there. Uh, obviously, people can resist physicians um, as strenuously as they like. And philosophers are very good at coming up with rationalizations of of preconceived conceptions. But I am a little bit more optimistic insofar as I think that a lot of the skepticism around robots and it being a form of companionship or mutuality or a genuine sexual interaction stem from a notion that uh, you know a robot just couldn't possibly have the same kind of mutuality or recipro- reciprocity that we have with a human being because they don't have an inner mental life of any kind, or they they don't have subjective states of consciousness that reciprocate or return our feelings, or they don't have free will. And, you know, I'm skeptical of all of those claims on a variety of reasons. But, you know, the the simple reason is that I I don't think we have strong, justified grounds for thinking that other human beings are um, conscious or have inner mental states. At least the, the kinds of epistemic grounding we have for belief in other human beings having inner mental states and mutual affection and reciprocity towards us are are capable of being replicated in robotic form. And I, I don't see a strong reason or objection to the notion of mutuality or companionship with robots. Although, yeah, some people might resist this because they're, as you say, deep skeptics about the possibility of robot consciousness or robot mentality. Yeah, and um, I, I guess, I mean, I guess, yeah, unlike um, Hobbes, we're in a slightly stronger position than Hobbes in that we also have certain kinds of data we can point to. Um, it's, you know, it, it's somewhat limited, I suppose, but there, there are lots of studies of what happens to people as they interact with robots uh, that shows that, uh, that people do, um, people do view them as you say, as being in a sort of unique ontological category. And it's, it's definitely, I mean, rooted in the, the human mind's peculiar ability to uh, project itself out onto the world. Yeah, exactly. Actually, like beyond the philosophical style objections, some of the studies of human-machine interaction, human-robot interaction, suggest that we do heavily anthropomorphize and project emotions and states of mind onto onto robots. And Julie Carpenter, who's one of the contributors to our book, has written quite a lot about this and has some, done some interesting fieldwork with U.S. soldiers who have quite touching and affectionate relationships with bomb disposal robots to such an extent that they're willing to throw funerals for them and give them purple hearts and medals of valor and that kind of thing. So, Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the other research that's being done right now, because it's of interest, especially in places like Japan, is um, uh, robots that work with the elderly and uh, and are often um, used as companions for the elderly as well as on a practical level, um, just used to, to do practical tasks that they can't find enough human beings to do. And so we have a certain sort of uh, sample set there. 
Yeah, I mean, just from my own perspective, the kind of contributions that I think I make to this debate, if I make any at all, are probably heavily influenced by my background. So my background is more in, in law and legal philosophy and ethics. And I guess I'm interested in how people might act out form or representations or forms of sexual deviancy. I know that's a problematic term, but um, I'm going to use it anyway, uh, with robots. So you know, one of my first articles on this was about the possibility of robots being used to act out rape fantasies and uh, the creation of child sex robots, whether that should be regulated or criminalized, and also then engaging a lot with the kinds of objections that come from feminist authors like Kathleen Richardson and the campaign against sex robots, but the concerns about the, the symbolic meaning of a sex robot, the interaction with it, and the likely consequences that it will have for society. Now, I mean, I've, I've set out those arguments or ideas in a number of venues previously, which I suspect people who listen to this will be familiar with. But, I mean, in, in broad outline, I'm a skeptic about the claim that there's some deeply problematic symbolic meaning associated with sex robots, partly because I think symbolic meaning is highly socially contingent. You know, act, acts that appear to be quite inegalitarian or oppressive turn out not to be in certain contexts. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting debates around BDSM and pornography that, that go into this. Uh, and there are other non-sexual examples of the contingency of symbolic meaning that I discuss in, in the book. And also, I'm, I'm a skeptic about claims that this technology will have negative consequences for society. Not that it couldn't have negative consequences for society. I think it possibly could, but I... I worry that we will never be able to adequately tell that based on analogies with other debates like the effects of violent video games or the effects of pornography. You know, I, I think I cite this figure in the book, which is that there have, according to one review study that I looked at recently enough, there have been 40,000 empirical studies of the effects of pornography done in the past 40 years or so. Some of them are very low quality. Uh, a lot of the researchers in this field lament the quality of the, the studies, the ones that are better quality reveal a multiplicity of views. So some say there's clear evidence of a negative impact. Some say there's evidence of a positive impact. And some say there's no discernible effect at all. And it's like a highly ideologically motivated and controversial debate. And I suspect that we'll just end up in a very similar position when it comes to looking at the effects and consequences of sex robots. So I mean, that's one of the main contributions that I make in the, in the chapter that I have in the book itself. No, no. Having said that, John, I mean, you also are not, um, you're not an unabashed booster. I mean, you have some concerns about, I mean, you say that, that you've discussed them elsewhere, but maybe you could just, just say quickly, at least that you have some concerns about the representation of, you know, children and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I am, I'm, I'm not convinced there's a good case to be made for child sex robots at all. So some people think that it could be used uh, for therapeutic purposes, but um, again, because I'm a skeptic about the the, the effects literature on that, that I, I I think it's unlikely that you know the studies of exposure to child pornography and whether that motivates real world um, interactions with children or whether it uh, satisfies desires for that and makes people less likely to act out in the real world is is, is controversial. And there aren't, I think robust enough findings to to reach a definitive conclusion and for that reason 
because there are no clear benefits, I don't see any good reason to permit or allow child sex robots. Um, but you know, maybe that's something that could be investigated empirically very carefully. But uh, you know, it's, again, not something I think we should have a free for all or encourage. And I do have concerns also about uh, the representation of of women and issues around consent and rape and how they might get acted out in robotic form. And I, th- I think the concerns there are legitimate. But you know, I, I've been heavily influenced recently by some literature I've been reading about the history of feminist pornography. And I think I've adopted an attitude that, you know, what's the response to the misogyny and inegalitarian attitudes that are often expressed in mainstream pornography? Well, the feminist pornography response is, well, the answer to that is to make better porn. And I tend to think that the same attitude should should apply when it comes to robot sex. The response should be to make better sex robots, not to be prohibitive or calling for bans on the technology. Right, that's interesting. And, and that's right. I mean, I think that um, I think that it's important to keep in mind that <laughs> that um, that robots are certainly going to appear in a certain um, a certain kind of social context. Um, they're not going to either solve or exacerbate problems that much on their own. I don't want to downplay their significance because I think they'll be significant. Um, but you know, um, I, I said to a, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine about the idea that this is you know, somehow going to going to create all these um, horrible attitudes towards women. And I think we should take horrible attitudes towards women seriously. And they're a big problem, but they are already out there. And, um, and so I think that uh, I think that it needs to be there needs to be a much broader con- I mean, rather than worrying about robots, I mean, I think we need to figure out how we can create a much broader conversation about how to address the kind of sexist attitudes and social inequalities uh, that exist. And maybe, I mean, maybe robots are an opportunity to do that. I, I, I'd say just as an aside, I was thinking about this as you were talking about um, some of the broader issues around, um, you know, symbolic context and how we know that even other people have uh, consciousness that robots are, for whatever reason, um, a very interesting way of raising certain kinds of other philosophical questions. As a teaching tool, they just they just seem to bring up all kinds of issues um, in a way that, you know, makes them useful as a as a point of discussion. Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, um, Stephanie Alice, who's a founder of a company called Mystery Vibe, which is a, a smart sex toy, I guess. Um, she's done a number of public talks where she makes a, a sort of a positive case for sex robots insofar as they they provoke these deeper questions about companionship and mutuality and personhood, uh, possibly more so than other kinds of erotic media or erotic technology, which I think is an interesting point. Like I, I've thought about this and I haven't ever articulated it before, I think, but one of the concerns that a lot of anti-porn are, are feminists or anti-porn campaigners have about internet pornography in particular is that it unbundles pornographic material from any pretense of, of narrative or context. You, you, you can go to porno, pornographic websites and look at videos that compile you know, clips of, of exactly the type of sexual interaction you like without any dialogue or interaction between the characters of any sort to, to provide a possibly richer understanding of companionship and mutuality. So there's this unbundling of, of content on, on pornographic websites. And one thing that you could say is positive about 
sex robots is because they will exist as some kind of integrated unit or whole, they'll kind of rebundle sen- sexual interactions into a more holistic and mutualistic form. So they could be more positive, I think, than, than other forms of, of sex toys and also erotic media. Right. I, I think, I mean, I think I would, I, I think you would agree with me. Well, I know you would agree with me on this that too, that, that um, I, I will say that on, I, I don't want to be outright dismissive of the, the kinds of concerns that feminists have raised either in that um, I do absolutely think that, you know, at least initially sex robots are going to look like a certain uh, very stereotypical image of what a woman should look like, according to a certain kind of man, uh, they're going to have a certain kind of compliant personality. And I think that we shouldn't, I mean, we shouldn't dismiss that. We shouldn't, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right to say, well, the answer is to build better sex plots, but that's only going to happen if we, if we do take the feminist concern seriously. And if we do push that, that conversation forward. And if when those kinds of robots come out and they do sort of seem to make those kinds of attitudes, you know, promote those kinds of attitudes, um, I think that we all do have an ethical duty uh, to step up and say, this is not okay. And this is not what should happen. So, so I I think that, I think that there is an answer to the feminist arguments, but I don't think that um, either of us would want to be dismissive of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we we do need that kind of constant vigilance and critique and analysis on on an ongoing basis so we can have a more, positive orientation towards this technology and a more positive vision of how this this technology manifests itself so i you know i absolutely would not want to downplay the seriousness of some of those those criticisms and concerns um i mean maybe we can move on to arguments and ideas that are not our own so i i suggested that we maybe talk about ideas from the book that we found particularly interesting with the initial caveat that since we put this book together and we recruited all the authors. We do, of course, love all the chapters in the book equally, but maybe there are certain ideas that you think um, you know, are particularly striking or, or interesting for the future of, of this debate. Um, I would definitely, I mean, <laughs> so, so I confess it's, it's been, it's been a while since I, I dug into all the essays. So I don't even, I don't even remember, um, uh, all the arguments. I remember being very impressed with all our contributors and thinking, uh, this was really great. I think that, uh, the, the piece on natural law approaches to sex bots is fascinating precisely because, um, well, first of all, I think that, um, modern natural law theory is a sort of, I think, probably the leading conservative articulation of sexual ethics uh, that's out there right now. It's it's a very complicated. I mean, it's 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 not doing it any injustice to call it you know medieval scholastic because that's exactly what it's inspired by. Um, but it it attempts to provide a certain kind of um, very traditional framework for sexuality. Uh, that's given a philosophical grounding. And I think that that Josh Goldstein's chapter on natural law deals with those arguments by showing how the natural law, I mean, one thing you could just say is that the natural uh, law theory framework is not for you. But he also shows that even um, in, turn, in, in its own terms, there's a lot of complexity there. And, um, you know, I think I, I've, I've heard a lot of objections to sex bots articulated that sort of come out of a natural law framework, but he shows that there's, there's more to the framework than that. It need not point sort of mechanistically to one, to one answer. You could, you could actually find a, a sort of sex bot friendly answer, uh, in natural law. Theory. Yeah. I was actually quite interested in that chapter as well, because I, I've spent a long time teaching new natural law theory in, in philosophy of law classes and 
the influence on, let's say, the same-sex marriage debate of people like you know, Robert George or John Finnis has been fairly strong. I mean, there's there's a real school of thought in legal circles which is, is very wedded to new natural law theory for for reasons possibly having more to do with the fact that it includes law within the title of it, even though it's not necessarily a legal theory, although there's a, a long-standing there, debate about that. Well, we, we should say, I mean, we, um, you know, we have, uh, <laughs> I mean, Neil Gorsuch, who's now on the Supreme Court in, in the United States, studied at Oxford with John Finnis and wrote his his thesis on uh, on, uh, on 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 natural law theory, and um, you know, within I think within the U.S. Uh, within the U.S. legal context, there's a lot of very significant legal minds who find this very influential. So it does seem to be, like, be that it's it's part of the conversation for sure. No, absolutely. I actually, I'd forgotten about Neil Gorsuch. I mean, interestingly, he replaced Antonin Scalia, who, although a conservative Catholic always said that he was he didn't use natural law theory to guide his legal judgments whereas yeah, Neil Gorsuch has been more active in defending and putting forward a, a new natural law view in, in some of his work on, on bioethics but um, I mean the new natural law is very sophisticated in its philosophical analysis and, and uses lots of complicated ideas and arguments and Josh Goldstein in his chapter is you know fluent in all of them. Um, you know, a, a simple characterization of it is that new natural law theorists adopt a, an essentially procreative view of sexuality, but that's not actually quite accurate. They have a, a much more nuanced understanding of it. But they, they think the only kinds of permissible sexual acts are ones that participate of a procreative type, even though they might not necessarily be intended or directed at procreation. Um, so you know, it's, it's a complex idea. So it, if that's the core of new natural law theory, you might think that there's just absolutely no way you could ever allow or permit a sex robot. And Josh sets that out in the introduction to his chapter. But then he proceeds from there to point out how, yes, it's not as straightforward a conclusion or a mechanistic conclusion. And it's possible to really to craft a more permissive and liberal sexual ethic from new natural law theory. So I think there's a lot in that chapter for people who are, are interested in new natural law theory and its intersection between the technology of sex and, and liberal and permissive attitudes towards sexuality. Yeah, I mean, anything else you think is kind of important or stands out for you? Um, so I'm, I found, I mean, I think the opening chapter by Mark McGaughy and Nicole, uh, <laughs> crap. Yes. Getting, thank you. Um, I think that, um, I think, I mean, so let me just say, by the way, I'm drawn to the philosophical articles to, as a philosopher. And uh, so I, I have a bias that the other authors in the book should, should, you know, not take offense to. So I, I found that the opening, the opening chapter on what exactly is sex and what it means to have sex uh, because I guess for the kinds of uh, questions I get asked about, you know, why is this even significant depend on um, robot sex being, in a sense, real sex. So what on earth does it mean to say some sex is real sex and some sex is not real sex? And I think that uh, Magadi and Wyatt's chapter provides an interesting discussion of, of why we would count something as, as real sex or significant sex or you know, why it counts, I guess. And so, so that, that, to me, I found helpful as a way of sort of setting the terms of the debate. Yeah, I mean, from, from my perspective, I think Marina Chad's chapter on, on the social consequences, and particularly the consequences for marriage of sex bots, was quite interesting. The economic style of analysis there 
is what uh, drives it, I guess, you know, looking at the unintended consequences or downstream consequences of a social change. And she uses a lot of her studies previously of the, you know, the impact of contraceptive technology on marriages to, to guide some of her thinking there and you know, makes the claim that yeah, it'll make marriage less about sexuality or se- sexual interactions and will also maybe clear the path for non-monogamy and less legalistic interventions in, into marriage, which I thought was interesting. And, uh, you know, the pair of chapters by Michael Hauskeller and Sven Nyam and Lily Frank, I find useful because they both go into the topic of love. So moving beyond sex and sexuality per se into intimacy and companionship more generally, which I think is actually an important point. And in many ways, I, I possibly would have preferred to put together a book about love with robots, but sex sells. So you know, <laughs> I think that the, this is the better title or, or, or initial um, entry point for people. And they can get yeah, into I- the debates about intimacy and and uh, mutuality and companionship at a later I, I mean, time. Yeah. And, and I do, I do think those are all, those are all really great chapters. And I, I think that those are all fascinating topics. I mean, I think one of the, one of the challenges with writing a book like this that we gave our authors and what the challenge that I think they all really rose to, um, you have to define the field. I mean, in often in philosophy and in academics, you, the, the debates happen because you're responding to certain kinds of canonical articles or certain kinds of debates that are ongoing. Um, that was mostly not the case with our authors. They had to figure out what the significant questions were and more or less work from scratch. And I think those chapters in particular, you really see, you really see some very sophisticated thinkers kind of going out on a limb and saying, um, you know, here's what the debate is going to look like rather than what it does look like. Um, I think that, you know, one of the big challenges you run into with um, talking about sex bots is, especially when people start talking about love, but also consent, all these other things is, well, you know, are, what's what level of personhood are they going to achieve? How, you know, are these going to be real per- people? Are they going to have real feelings? Are they going to be able to consent? Is it going to be important to to have their consent? And that's where we also get furthest away from knowing really what the technology is going to be like. I mean, I, I, I was really struck by something you said, John, once you said, uh, you know, you, you don't, we don't know what our next phone is going to look like or anything that's going to happen technologically. We don't know if AI is going to destroy the universe. We do know people are going to have sex with robots. And so in, in writing this collection, we were being speculative, but we were being speculative about something that we do know is going to happen. However, when you get into the chapters about love and companionship and consent and AI, that's where we start to get into questions that we just we just don't know the answer to on a technical level. As you say, one of the challenges here is to define a field, and I think I think both of those chapters do set out the the questions and issues that need to be addressed quite well, and and they have their own arguments and positions that they're defending. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to again go through every chapter um, and. I know it's unfair to particular authors not to, to, go, to mention their chapters, but you know there's lots of interesting contributions. There's you know stuff about the legal and ethical implications of, of child sex robots. You know the social acceptance, social norms around robots and sex. Some more empirical, psychological, and sociological studies, and also Steve Peterson's chapter, which I think is quite fun and is a good entry point into the literature of people like looks at the topic from a totally different perspective, which is the perspective of the robot. So it's like, would it be a bad thing to be a sex robot? Um, and right. He's written about this in the past in relation to robot servitude. But I, I, I thought his analysis of, of um, the life of a sex robot was, was quite good. And it, spoiler alert, he, he thinks it mightn't be a bad thing at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that's, that's a fun chapter to read. I think that, uh, 
I think that one of the one of the things I like about our book is that I can recommend it to non-specialists because there are a lot of chapters like this that that are that are just a lot of they're, they're a lot of fun to think about a lot of fun to read. Yeah, I think okay, we'll probably um, you know wrap up the conversation to some extent now, but I just a few maybe final questions. Um, you you mentioned you did this book launch recently in, in um, Winnipeg. So yes. What what was the feedback? Or you mentioned some of the feedback initially, but what was the uptake or response to the book from a more general audience? Because that that book launch was to a, an audience in a bookshop of, of interested parties, not necessarily a, a university or academic audience. That's right. One of the you know one of the questions I got was one that I was sorry we we didn't get a chapter on. We had someone who we had hoped would write it and and uh, didn't end up being able to do that. But it was about the design of the robots. There's a lot of questions about a robot design having to do with are they going to be hackable, but also should they be open source? What's the software going to look like? Um, that you know you kind of have to be a, have a certain level of technical understanding to to really discuss. But I had. I had a couple of people in the audience who were techies who who wanted to know, like, yeah, could you could you have could you could you sideload different kinds of software and and you know if we even if we made even if we made um, robots that had a certain kind of personality they would there'd be no problem people sideloading other kinds of personalities and so on and what would be the intellectual property. Um, implications and so we had we had a, a debate that was a little bit over my head but uh, but interesting from a techie perspective that that I, I think we, we weren't able to get into in the book um there was definitely i think the most acute sort of concern there was people who were concerned there always is and i i think um people were just worried about social isolation resulting from robots and you know especially as as these get used by younger people and so on because i think there's there's so you know there's a few people in the audience who are parents of teenagers and they're already watching their teenagers uh disappear into their rooms with their smartphones and never come out and there's already so much concern around the way people the way technology technology is isolating us and uh and uh, I think that the concern was that uh, this will just be another tech thing. I mean, the cooler you make it, the worse it'll be, and that this will be another thing like our gaming consoles and our phones and everything else that just leaves us isolated and alone. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that's not an, an illegitimate concern. It is, of course, the, the classic objection to sex robots from Futurama about why you, know, why you shouldn't <laughs> date robots, which is that it, we'll stay in our rooms all the time and never come out. And I, I don't want to disparage it because i think there are reasons to think that we are moving in that direction you know there's trends towards increased social isolation and withdrawal from the world which are are interesting and we probably don't have time to get into but yeah i can see that being a common concern i think an issue that i sometimes encounter with people is just that they think it's absurd that we're even talking about it i don't know if you ever get that pushback uh yeah a little bit i mean i guess it's a self-selecting group if they're gonna drag themselves out on a winter evening in Winnipeg that there there are people who are already uh they're already interested uh and the same goes with you know when I get calls from journalists and so on um but definitely when I teach it in the class there's definitely the sort of the the people who sit at the back with a with a skeptical look on their face um I, I again, my I mean, my my answer is is always the answer again that you know you raised, which is that you know of all the uncertainty in this world and of all the uncertainty around technology, the one thing we do know for sure is that people are going to be having sex with robots before very long, and so we should we should at least start to think about what that means. 
Yeah, so another question I wanted to ask was, but where do you think this debate is going to go in the future? I mean, you mentioned issues around you know, data protection and hackability, which I think are definitely important, and it is a pity that we weren't able to get a chapter on that in the end. But you've recently attracted some notoriety for an article you wrote on the idea of digisexuality. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So uh, that was an article I co-wrote for a psychology journal with a friend of mine who is a uh, family and uh, sex therapist. And um, it had to do with um, a discussion with discussions we had around uh, sexual identity formation. Uh, she does a lot of work around people with marginalized sexual identities, and um, and we were just interested in this idea that that certain kinds of sexual practices become the basis for sexual identity. And when we looked at not just robots, but also VR and other emerging sexual technologies, uh, it occurred to us that they provide a certain kind of immersive experience that is independent of a human partner, and that it was reasonable to conclude that people would use it as uh, the basis for a new sexual identity. And that's what we call digisexuality. Digisexuals are people who identify as being primarily sexually whatever take their sexual experiences primarily from technology and yes it got a certain amount of notoriety it's funny i've written two things that have had a take up in the media particularly the right-leaning media one is a piece i wrote on ecosexuals and one is this piece on digisexuals and it's interesting that Anytime you talk about not just technology, but about identity formation, the idea that you can draw your identity from a certain kind of sexual practice is both fascinating and disturbing to people in a very specific way. And I mean, I don't think it's any accident because when you look around the world right now, there's lots of people who are very invested in this idea that we should take our identity, as people traditionally have, from their nation, their race, and so on. And the idea that you would take your identity from your sexuality uh, really undercuts some of some of those things and so it, it it creates a kind of visceral reaction i think in some people uh so that that was uh that was interesting i should say i mean when it comes to that article what we what we did basically was coin the term i mean there was a sociologist who tweeted that you know this is an interesting study but i'm not sure about the data and i had to say well there, there isn't data exactly. I mean, we just we just sort of coined this term and speculated based on our experience with other kind of marginalized sexualized identities that we think this will be something that will happen in the future. Yeah, no, but oftentimes coining coining a term is half the battle. If it, if it matters to <laughs> register amongst the people who are interested in the topic, that can be good enough. Yeah, too, and I should say too. I mean, also though, I mean, we I shouldn't be flippant about it because we also talked a lot about uh, the idea of erasure and how people with marginalized sexual identities, for them, often you know, naming a term and being able to identify as a member of a particular community is also very important to to those people. Yeah, I think that is an interesting future direction for the research in this area, which is around identity politics and the intersection between, as you say, digisexuality and identity politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my own perspective, I I have thoughts about where the future of, of this debate goes. I think our book does a good job of, of setting out some of the topics and areas for conversation, and I'm sure more people will enter into the, the fray and make it a more nuanced, more particularized debate. I, I would like to see people adopting this, you know, not necessarily purely negative or pessimistic attitude towards the technology and, and to think seriously about ways in which we can build a, a positive future with the technology. Not, it's not that I want to be fatalistic about 
the technology, but I, I guess I kind of am, to some extent, fatalistic insofar as I think, as you've mentioned several times, this is definitely going to happen. And either it happens with a level of, of diligence and critical awareness and thoughtfulness, or it doesn't. And I think we shouldn't re- repeat the mistakes of the past where we don't um, take a, a more serious, involved, critically aware uh, stance on, on the development of the technology. Um, so yeah, just to, to wrap up, I think the last question I wanted to ask, and I have maybe thoughts on this too, which is, you know, sex robots have been a long-standing trope in science fiction and the media. I mean, do you have any favorite fictional or media depictions of sex robots? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess uh, just as a preface to this, I will say I'm not especially thrilled in general. The one thing that, that sort of baffles me is how serious every media treatment of sex robots is. I mean, I think one of the things about this is they're, they're kind of fun to talk about. And one of the things I enjoy talking about them in class is because, you know, we have a discussion that's not always totally serious. But uh, everyone who has to make a film or a book or a film or a TV show about this, it has to be so serious. And maybe that's a function of the general seriousness of, uh, of science fiction on the whole. But I, I guess I, I find a certain level of frustration. I really liked the TV series uh, I guess it was called Real Humans in uh, Sweden. I guess it was originally, and then it was remade as Humans in the UK. And I actually like, I think, the English uh, remake better. I thought that was a really thoughtful and just endlessly interesting uh, uh, series, I have to say. I, I'll, I'll go on record in saying that the, the new Westworld series, again, I just found I found all the dialogue very portentous, and I found it just all very heavy and serious. People assured me that if I had stuck with it, there was lots of interesting twists coming, so maybe I will finish it. But it left me a little underwhelmed based on a couple episodes. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of, of science fiction is dystopian, and that gets reflected in how they treat and understand sexual interactions with, with robots and, and technology as well. But I agree with you, humans is one of the things I cite, actually, in, in the book and discuss in the book. And one reason why I like it is that the robots in humans are not specifically sex robots. And, and this is something I'm always keen to emphasize when people ask me about it, is that I don't really see the future being in single-use specialized sex robots. I think the future lies in more general-purpose, multifunction robots that people happen to use for sexual, to satisfy sexual ends. So um, that's one thing I liked about, about humans. My own recommendation or thought here is the new Blade Runner movie, which is very portentous and serious. But one thing I liked about that is there's a scene within it which depicts an interaction between a replicant and a virtual reality companion. And this is something as well that we get into a little bit in the book. Does a sex robot have to be a physical embodied thing or can be something that you interact with through a a virtual reality environment? And I tend to have a more, um, not more than you necessarily, but I tend to have a a broader understanding of what a sex robot is that could in- encompass and include virtual interactions. But uh, one of the things within the the film is, you know, how do you have sex with a virtual being if it just consists of holograms projected in front of you? And they, they do so through the use of a sexual surrogate and the kind of overlapping of the virtual reality being with the uh, sexual surrogate, which I, I thought was interesting. It's an idea explored to some extent in the movie Her as well. Yeah, I liked that. I liked her. I was, I was, um, you know, it's not like my favorite movie ever made, but I thought it did a really good job of raising some really interesting questions. 
Yeah, but, uh, so I, I think Blade Runner is slightly better in the way in which it depicts um, the possible forms of, of, of sex, sexual interaction with technology. So that's that's my my recommendation. Um, any concluding thoughts or final comments? Uh, no, I, I don't have anything specific. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad people are talking about it. I'm glad there's there's uh, there's so much interest. I think that you know the point you just made, which is that. Um, we never expected this to be the last word that we stepped, you know, we stepped into this um, because we thought there, there was just not much out there. And and now we're kind of hoping this will just be the first step. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to people's responses and to what comes next. Yeah, me too. And, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to turn this, this uh, podcast into an advertisement, but the book is available from all fine book sellers now, although probably not actually that widely available, but you can order it on the everything store. It's like Amazon for people who aren't aware. Okay, Neil. Um, oh, before we go, I did want to make one point to people who are listening to this, which is that Neil is not, you know, just a regular ivory tower academic or philosopher. He's also a competent stage performer and, uh, you know, brings philosophy into the real world through, um, his one man show about cryonics, which, uh, you, um, are you going, planning on doing any more shows along those lines in the future? Um, I'm, 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 so I, I toured, I toured my cryonics show, um, to Paris and Prague and Vancouver, uh, this summer. And by the end, I must admit, I was, I was feeling, um, a little exhausted, but I do, I am actually working on a new play right now about, uh, the poet Yeats and the automatic writing that he did with his wife. Okay. So there you go. And contributions to, uh, cultural life more generally beyond, beyond the philosophy of robot sex. Um, okay, Neil, thanks for, for this conversation. Thanks so much, Sean.